We are in a series that uh, we've entitled, I Am. I am who God says I am. And we've taken a look several, several weeks ago. We took a look at the importance of the mental health issue and how we as a church are going to take on that signature issue, that we want to be a resource for the faith-based communities, that we want to ourselves be equipped on how to help people with the mental challenges and issues that they might have. Uh, that we want to uh, be, a, uh, like I said, a resource for our community and networking with other nonprofits, kind of like we do with uh, the homeless situation. And we're making progress on that front. Uh, I and John uh, have already sat down with different health professionals in our church, just understanding kind of the landscape that is out there. And we started off with that. And then the next week, we took a look at just the importance of our minds that God has given us the minds that we have and that we need to be guarding them. We need to be protecting them. We need to be feeding our brains the right kind of stuff. And then we jumped into what I would refer to as the first hope statement, which was, I am who God says I am. And we discovered that God has dealt us some cards, kind of like a poker hand, that he has given us our chemistry, our connections, our circumstances, our conscious, consciousness, and our choices. Those five things make you, you. And in that message, I declared, and I think we all really understand this, that we're all different and we're all broken. We're not crazy, but we're broken, okay? Then the following week, last week, we took a look at the chips that oftentimes are in our windshields, or are in our windshield, that as we travel down the road of life, they become larger. Initially, we don't think of them as that important, but as we get bumped with our chemistry, as we get bumped with our, our connections, as we get a bump in our uh, circumstances of life, those cracks begin to become larger, and they affect our view of God, and they affect our view of ourselves. Shame does that. Uncontrolled thoughts do that. Compulsion, fear, hopelessness, bitterness, and insecurity. Now today, we're going to take a look at I am confident. I am who God says I am. I am confident. And I want to start off with a question. I want you to take some good notes here. I want to start off with a question, and it is this. How do you know when someone is having a crisis of confidence? It is an internal thing, isn't it? It is a mental thing. So how do you know when someone is having a crisis of confidence? Well, I would say that you would first look on the outside. That you would look at how many identities that person is trying to live. Now, when you have a crisis of confidence in who you are and in the thoughts of who you should be and the way that you should behave, understand something, that the baseline that you are operating off of is fear. Now, everyone has a baseline of identity, and that is their gender. 
You're either male or female. You're either masculine or feminine. And from that baseline, when you are having a crisis of confidence, you look to put your manhood or your womanhood into something. You begin to look to places in culture to put your masculinity or your femininity into. In other words, you look around and you begin to imitate what culture is offering up. Now, as parents of teenagers, you understand this completely, do you not? I mean, how many times as a parent have you said, I mean, I heard my dad say this, why are you trying to be like your friends? Why don't you just be who you are? I mean, if they jumped off a bridge, George, would you jump off one? Well, no, I wouldn't do that. That's just who I am, Dad. Truly, as I was growing up as a teenager, I had all kinds of identities. I had a sports identity. In fact, I placed ninth in state my senior year in triple jump. I had a theater identity. I was voted the best actor of one X in my high school. I had a scholar identity. I was the first Pfizer that, was, that graduated, out of, graduated from the university or from college. I had a, G, a GQ identity. I was a ladies' man, okay? <laughs> you see, when you are having a crisis of identity, you begin to imitate what your culture offers up to you. Now, as adults, we do the same thing. Let's just don't blame our, t- our teenagers with this. There are a lot of number of personas that we adopt in our culture that we believe will quell the crisis inside. I believe the first reason that we, we adopt false identities is because of this fear. It is a fear that's deep down inside of us. But the second reason why I believe so many people adopt a false identity is because with every identity, there is an activity associated with it. There's football activities, there's theater activities, there is school activities, there are party activities. And a lot of times when there is chaos going on within where we don't want to deal with reality, it is easier to adopt a false identity and the activities that go with it so that we don't have to deal with real life. So that we don't have to deal with real relationships. That we don't have to deal with real problems. That we don't have to even deal with our real self. And why is that? It's because through those activities, we numb ourselves. We numb ourselves with pain. Or we numb, I should say, the pain from those activities. Our work identity gives us activities that just numbs that pain. Our social identity numbs the pain that may be going on within us. Our ministries that we're involved in, hey, can numb the pain of the reality of what's going on inside of us or in our world. Or the school, we have a school identity. These things numb our pain. Now today we're going to take a look at a full-on identity crisis. We're going to take a look at also a full-on identity discovered in the Apostle Paul. We're going to take a look at his journey. How, how Paul went from Saul to Paul. How Saul, who was lacked confidence in his being and his believing and his behavior to Paul 
who was confident and secure in who he was. His story starts out in Galatians chapter 2, verse 19 through 20. Let's, let's read this. What actually took place is this. I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a lawman so that I could be God's man. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. And I am no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am not going, I am not going to go back on that. You see, what is it that we see here? Folks, we see a man who's having a crisis of conflict. It is internal and it is mental and it's being worked out externally. And what we see in Paul here in Galatians 2, we see in men and women in our culture. It is a common journey. And so I say this, let's go on this journey with Paul because maybe in the process, you and I will discover some things about ourselves. The first thing that we see on this journey of Saul to Paul, of no confidence to confidence, is this. Will you write this down? The searching. And what is Paul searching for? Folks, he is searching for a place to put his manhood. And he, in his day, had a lot of places that he could put that. He, he could put his identity. All right, I should say he had political options. He had military options. He had per, other professional options. He had religious options. And ch Paul chose to place his identity in a religious identity. In verse 19, what actually took place is this. I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God. This is the first statement Paul reveals about suffering with an identity crisis. And the indicator is this, performance. Paul feels like his identity is somehow rooted in performance keeping rules, being in right places, being in the right clubs. And he never knew whether he arrived. Because he says, and will you circle this, he's working his head off. Which I would suggest that there is a fear driving this. I never know I'm doing enough. Now this is the first tangible indicator of someone suffering from an identity crisis, performance. When you're in a performance-based identity, guess what? It's exhausting, isn't it? Because you never know. You never know if you've gotten there. You never have a peace of mind. You're always asking, am I there yet? Am I there yet? Have I done enough? Now, Paul describes, I believe, in detail, this fear that is driving him to perform out of Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5. He says this, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. 
I am pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. Paul externally is number one in the AP polls. In the NFL draft, he is the Baker Mayfield, okay? The first one chosen. He is at the top of the game. He is the top of his game. And Paul comes along and says, I am a member. I am a member from the tribe of Benjamin, which was the first tribe that had the first king. That's what I'm a part of. And I am a Pharisee. There are only 6,000 Pharisees. And I'm one of them. In fact, I was taught by the top guy. And because I have the right traditions and I have the right associations externally, I have an elevated opinion about myself. Others demand it. I deliver on it. Folks, that's what we see in the searching part of Saul to Paul. We see this unhealthy identity of Paul working his blessed assurance off. Now, I would have you know something. I, I saw this in myself as well. When I was in high school and going through college, I was working every identity trying to calm my fear. And you may be asking, well, what, what, what was that fear? Fear of rejection. A fear that I wouldn't be accepted. That I wasn't worth other people's attention and time because of the deck of cards that I was dealt with. I was working my head off to belong. To belong to this group, to belong to that group, to belong to another group. So that I would have peace of mind and know that I'm worth something. And guess what? I never got there. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're working your full head off. You're trying to belong. You're thinking that something on the outside will osm uh, automatically osmose to something on the inside of you. And you'll have peace of mind. Well, the searching inevitably led Paul to the next phase, which is this, the suffering this type of performance-based existence causes us to start valuing our performance in our identity over people. We stop seeing people for who they really are, and we only see our need for more of the unhealthy identity that we are seeking. And in the process, what happens is that we start to suffer. Take a look at Philippians 3, verse 6. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. Folks, there's the second indicator that you're suffering from a crisis of identity, a crisis of confidence. When the way you be and believe and behave as a man or as a woman begins to fragment the relationships where other people suffer. When that happens, you're in a crisis of confidence. Now, it's interesting, Paul gets so numb in his quest as a religious man that it leads to this. Take a look at Acts 7. They dragged him out. This is the story of the first martyr, Stephen, in Acts. 
They dragged him, Stephen, out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid him at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned him. Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. So you see that Saul brings suffering out of his crisis of identity. He is so into his performance of being and believing and behaving. He is getting so much reward, stimulation from it that he loses sight of one thing, his conscience. And in the process of losing sight of his conscience, he begins to make other people suffer. Now, when I think of my own journey, I can say this. I too saw myself beginning to violate my conscience. And in the process, I not only hurt myself, but I began to hurt people who were attached to me. Why? Because of the fear that was deep down inside. The fear of rejection. The fear that was driving me. I've got to get people's approval. I've got to get their acceptance. I've got to be significant. I've got to be validated in my manhood. How about you? You see, a good sign that you are needing a new identity is answering this question. Are the people around you suffering because of the way you've chosen to be and believe and behave? It's worth thinking about, isn't it? And so we move from this part of the journey, from the searching, from the suffering, to the meeting. Take a look at Acts 9. Three through nine. As he, that is Paul, was, or Saul, we should say, as he, Saul, was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood, stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companion led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Have you ever heard the phrase, come to Jesus meeting? Have you ever had a come to Jesus meeting? This is the original come to Jesus meeting right here. Saul has his come to Jesus meeting, and it is very humbling. He's riding along in, on his high horse go, uh, down the road of Damascus with a par- couple of partners in crime. This flashing light happens. He's knocked off his horse. He lands flat on the ground with his face down. He doesn't know what in the world's going on. The person he's killing people about now starts talking to him. Folks, this is a very humbling experience. When he gets up from that experience, he is blind as a bat. 
And he has to be led by hands. Think of this. This is a guy who's number one in the AP polls. He has to be led by hands because he can't see. Now, I would have us know that if you were blind, you were at the bottom of the ladder back then. And so here we see Paul, who is at the top of the AP polls, the number one draft choice of of the Pharisees. And now he's not even on the list. Folks, that was very humbling. Now, some of us here have had some dramatic come to Jesus meetings, haven't we? Some of us here have had some dramatic come to Jesus meetings like where you see this burning bush and God speaks from it with Moses. Some people have had those kinds of talks and it's been so validated to them that they changed like that. Other people have had those too. Not just Paul, not just Moses. Pascal, I was reading some some of Pascal this weekend. And he was a French philosopher, mathematician. And eight years before he died, he had a burning bush moment with God. God spoke to him in such a validating way that he gave his life to Christ. And he wrote about it. It was about a note. It was about that long. And he pinned it inside of his jacket over his heart so that every day that when he woke or woke up and put on his coat, he would see it and he would know it would be right there. And people didn't even know about it until he died. And then they took his coat off and they saw the note. And the word that was repeated throughout that experience that he had, that burning bush experience that he had with, with, God, with God was joy, 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 which is, by the way, is an internal thing. Some people have what I would call burning bush moments. Bam! They were once like this, and now they're like that. But not everyone has that. And just because it may not have been a burning bush moment doesn't mean that a meeting hasn't taken place. Sometimes the light from heaven looks like a slap across the face. Like those V8 commercials, you know what I'm talking about? Should have had a V8, you know. Sometimes the light that comes from heaven is more like a slap across the face where we've had maybe some delay or some difficulty or some disease come in or some trial or trouble or trauma that brings us to a full stop on the way of being and believing and behaving. And those full stops I believe, are just as valid as the burning bush moments. Because what they do is they paint us in a corner where we're placed in front of a mirror that we have to look at. I think that's how most people have full stops. And it's humbling. And I have been there. And I would submit that a slap across the face is just as validating, just as valid as a burning bush moment where you're humbled. You see, if you're in that situation, and it's not a burning bush, but it's, I don't know, slap across the face, understand this. 
God is calling you by name. God is calling you to a new identity. You see, for me, it was my end of my freshman year in college. I went off to college with two other guys, Mike Smittle and Doug Van Kirk. We were the three musketeers all the way through high school. We were the big shots. Uh, we were the three amigos. And when we went off to school, man, we were going to live our identities. And guess what? Our grades reflected it too. After my freshman year, I came back home. So did all of us. We were hanging together. I was working. And my dad shows up at my workplace about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And he says, George, I want to tell you something so that you're not shocked if you hear it on the radio. But Doug Van Kirk has been killed in a car accident. As he was going to work in the morning, a car jumped the median and landed right on top of him. He died instantaneously. Now, at that point in time in my life, I believed in God. I had him up here. And when I heard that, you might think that that would have driven me closer to him, but rather it helped me to see that I didn't believe in God. I hated God. God, if you can do that and allow something like that to happen to one of my friends, no thank you, God. And I began to pursue my false identity, identities even more so creating more bitterness and more regret and more hurt in other people's lives. But God's light came. His mirror came through a person named Cheryl Stepp. And as I looked at her life, I saw mine reflected back, but it wasn't like hers, who loved God, who was committed and had convictions, who was innocent. But understand something. That time when I met Cheryl, who now is my wife, was a full stop for me. And when you want to go from a lost identity to identity discovered, for which you have been created to be, you must have a full stop. And I don't care what that full stop might look like. It may be a burning bush moment, great. Or it may be a slap across the face. But you need a full stop. And right now you may be in some circumstances where God is calling out your name. But for what purpose, you might ask? To stop the confusion of your false identity that is creating insecurities within you so that you can start a new identity. So what happens next in Saul's journey? Well, what happens after Paul now, confusion is gone about who he really is, the next comes the morphine. You have the meeting, and then you have the morphing. Now, the word morphos in the Greek means transition, change, transformation. And this is what happens to Paul. We see the transition of his identity. We see the transaction of his leadership on the inside. And we see the transformation of his behavior. In Galatians 2.19, back to that, he says, So I quit being a lawman so that I could be God's man. Stop right there. 
In that sentence, Paul is describing the morphing from the power man to God's man. Now let me submit this. That in Paul's culture, he still had opportunity to live out false, a false identity. He still had options to place his manhood into. Just like today in our culture, after we have been morphed, or after we have had the meeting with Jesus, whether it's a burning bush or whether it's a slap across the face, culture still offers options. Power man is still out there, right? And we know it because when we get that new permission, a new position and we get that new business card, whoa. Pleasure man is still out there. And we see it in our thinking when we begin to think, hey, where's the next thrill? Where's the next place of enjoyment? Where's the next adventure? Possession man is still out there, isn't it? Because when we get into our cars, we think, you know what? What I drive is who I am. If I've got a mean machine, then I am a mean machine. So the choices are still out there. They were out there in Paul's day. And folks, I would say this, that there are more choices today in our culture than in Paul's. Even when it comes to gender issues. But Paul's choice was, I'm going from power man to God's man. You see, God wants you to make that transition too. He wants you and I to stop chasing our identity through our pleasure and power and position, hoping that these things somehow, some way, will osmotically, I think that's the right word, but if it isn't, forgive me, change us on the inside where we have peace of mind. God says, I want you to do what Paul did. I want you to go from power man to God's man. And then after that, you see a transition of identity, or after his transition of identity, you see a transaction of leadership. Will you circle, my ego is no longer central. You see, pride and fear aren't driving his energy and his expression. No. Christ is driving it. And then you see transformational behavior. Circle, it's no longer important. You see, when Paul says that, what follows means a transformation of thinking and living. He's no longer thinking, or he's, it's no longer important to him that he impress other people or even God. That's not how it works. It's Christ lives in me. And in that one sentence, Christ lives in me. Paul tells us about a deception that is going on in our culture. A deception that says, you know what? I can arrange my life on outward things to change the inward stuff. And Paul's saying, it's a lie. It's a lie. You can't do it. It doesn't work. It won't bring you peace of mind no matter how much you want to change the outside. No matter what group you want to be in, it's not going to change the outside or it's not going to change the inside. 
Transformation doesn't happen from the outside in. It happens as Christ is in. And folks, that was true for me because significance wasn't going to come for me. And acceptance wasn't going to come for me. And purpose and significance wasn't going to come for, for me through those external things. I had to have a meeting. And I had to have the morphing. A new management. A new thinking. A new playbook. A new behavior. A new team. A new direction. The new activities and the new accessories weren't going to change my heart. So how does this morphing look like? Well, that's the next phase of the journey. The freeing. We have the searching, we have the suffering, we have the meeting, we have the morphing, and now the freeing. What we see next is the key to identification discovery. It is the key of calming the internal crisis and being confident in who God has created you to be. Take a look at verse 20 in Galatians. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. And I am no longer driven to impress God. Or to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am not going to go back on that. So what is the key? Circle, love. God loved me. Why is John 3.16 so important? Because it's about God's love. Which raises this question, what is real love anyway? There's a lot of things that are declared, oh, it's just love. What is real love? Let me tell you what real love is, at least a couple of things. Real love is sacrificial. There's no such thing as real love without sacrifice. And if you are a parent, you understand this. Guys, reminder, Mother's Day is next week, okay? It is the sacrifice of a mom and dad spending time with their kids. It is the sacrifice of mom and dad staying up late when they are sick. It is the sacrifice of mom and dad as they take their kids here and there and everywhere else. That sacrificial love is seen. And what does that sacrificial love do for that child? It causes them to transform into, in my case, Pfizer's. My boys are Pfizer's. Why? Because of the sacrificial love of Cheryl and I. I love reading war stories of battles where maybe someone has lost their life, but as a result, others have been saved. And what is interesting when you talk to these survivors of the battles that they have been through in life, a couple of things come, come up in their conversations. First of all, they would never be referred to as a hero. They say, I'm not a hero. The heroes were those who were left behind in that battle. But the other thing that they say is this, I don't want that person's sacrifice to be in vain. You see, real, real love, sacrificial love, transforms. And that is why Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for a friend. 
Another aspect of real love is that real love lasts eternally. Real love is the the love that you don't fear ever losing. And that is what most people are looking for in life. Truly the key in, in making the transition from a lost identity to a discovered identity happens through real, eternal love. Take a look at Romans 8. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful. Will you circle that word? Fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, now we call him Abba Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. Paul traded his religious performance-based ID where he didn't know if what he was doing was enough. That was creating fear within him to where now he had discovered his ID, his identity, and he was fearless. You see, here's what I've learned in almost 40 years of ministry. That every person in their heart of hearts wants their identity rooted in the love of a father. I can remember times when my kids were growing up and we had those princess phones that hung on the wall. Remember those? That I would be, I, I would get a call from Cheryl and there would be a crisis that has occurred in the family. One of the lizards died. And Aaron and Matthew and David were upset. She couldn't calm them down. Where, are, where is the lizard now? Is he going to be in heaven with Jesus? You know, I mean, it was a crisis. And when I would get home, I would say, Aaron, Matthew, David, dad's home. Everything is okay. You can calm down now. Dad's in control of the White House. I would have us know that even today, my kids are 40, 36, and 32. And even to this day, my kids call me and say, Dad, can we get together? I need to talk. Generally what that means is they want a free dinner, but but they still call. Now, sometimes I see things going on in their life, and I call them. And I say, can I talk with you about something? This is, Dad, you're trying to control us. Okay. Okay, I'll back off. But there is something relaxing, is there not, about the presence of a dad, about the promise of a dad, about the love of a dad. That is what we long for deep inside of us is the love of our heavenly father. Which leads us to the last point. The feeling. And what is it? Take a look at 2 Corinthians 3. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is, and will you circle this word, freedom. Freedom is the most precious thing that money can't buy. It's an identity 
made, <clears throat> that you were made for. It stabilizes you in such a way that you are able to make healthy choices to be and to believe and to behave as a man or as a woman. Freedom, folks, it liberates. And if you are a believer, God wants you to experience real freedom emotionally and mentally to such a point that you're able to say this along with the writer of Hebrews. So we have this confidence. I am who God says I am. And I am confident that the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? You see, where does real confidence about who we really are. Where's that found? It's not found in the externals, in the groups that we choose to associate with, the activities that are involved with them, the accessories that come with all those things. Rather, our true identity, where I can say, I am who God says I am, I am confident comes inside. Christ in me. That's where it starts. Let's pray. <clears throat> I don't know what journey you're on. And I don't know what part of the journey that has passed and where you're at right now. I just know this, that if you want to be who God has created you to be, and you want to be confident in that, it starts with a meeting. And it's a meeting with Jesus Christ, who loves you more than you can even begin to imagine who sacrificed himself to communicate to you in the most tangible way possible, I love you this much. Right now, maybe you were like me, I don't know, 40 years ago, with just God in your thoughts, but you haven't dropped him down into your heart. Will you do that? Will you just say something as simple as this? God, I admit I've blown it. I have violated my conscience. I have hurt others in the process. But I believe that you love me, that you died on the cross for my sins, that you resurrected. And right now, even as life is slapping me in the face, you are calling out my name. Will you just say yes to Jesus Christ? Will you just say, Jesus, I surrender. Come inside. Change me from the inside out. And if you prayed a prayer similar to that, I believe God heard you. It may have been a burning bush moment or it may have been something different from that but you're one of his now. 
God wants to work in you and he wants to work through you. Will you give me the privilege of being a part of your journey? Take your communication card, just write your name, maybe an email address, throw it in the offering basket as it goes by and I'll mail you some literature, email you some literature. It'll help you understand the journey that you're on right now and all that Christ wants to do in you and through you. So God, we thank you that you're one who cares about our whole being. You care about our vocations. You care about our relations. You care about our emotions. You care about our finances. God, you care about us mentally. And you've placed things in your word to help us on this journey, God. We thank you for that. In your son's precious name we pray, amen.